Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse, and I want to share a few things with you before we start this robust international finance and banking segment with some kahunas. I thought I was a kahuna, but I'm telling you, I've had to be medicated for days to deal with the people that are on today. Over the summer, we invited Nia Vardalis of My Big Fat Greek Wedding, who published her first book called Instant Mom, and it was a delightful, darling interview. I want you all to tune in when you need lightness and levity because some of the things we get into are heavy and tough and complicated, and I want you to have some lightness too. We also brought in Tommy James of Tommy James and the Shondells who sold 100 million records. Poor guy at 17 signed a deal with a crime boss in New York and didn't know it, and the crime boss lorded over him and the Shondells for years to come and took $40 million from them and many of the proceeds that they can't even account for He had to wait till they all died in order to tell his story. Me, the mob, and the music. Tune into that show. And lastly, because three really is the charm, when I traveled to Europe earlier this year, I had some wacky, wild experiences in the south of France. Do tune into the crazy, kooky commentary, God help us all, for levity, enjoyment, and comedy. All right, Bruce, hit it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. You've heard us talk about the Grameen Bank and how it was formed and what Dr. Yunus did before he got the Nobel Prize. We've talked to you about the quants and high-frequency trading, how credit default swaps and derivatives really work. We've talked to you about gold and silver and platinum and different platforms that you can use to own and have your own allocated storage. We've talked to you about the national and international laws governing, lording over the way things work in banking and everything and anything to do with finance. We've covered the Federal Reserve, how it works, constitutional law with people that were part of writing the gold clause. We've talked to you about insider trading in the stock options area and how the COMEX manipulates the futures and the metals markets. We've talked to you about crowdfunding today. We are bringing the whistleblower that was over 21 years at the World Bank. Her name is Karen Hudis, and she is a contender, ladies and gentlemen. She does not let up when it comes to telling the truth and bringing lawfulness back into international business. She blew the whistle on the World Bank for what is considered a corrupt takeover of the second largest bank in the Philippines, facilitated by the former president of the Philippines, having to do with the acquisition of stock that was owned by government employees. There is so much to tell about her work. She's been on radio and television shows talking about how to bring change in a world gone awry in the area of international finance and law. She has gone up through the highest chains of command to do what she considers her job. And her job extended beyond her role at the World Bank because she was fired and, as a whistleblower, has taken tremendous heat for actually trying to bring lawfulness into the institution. And when you speak truth to power and when you stand up to power, there are ramifications. She is fearless. 
I have heard her talk on interview after interview, which is why I had to drink incredibly before this interview. No, actually, I don't drink. She is also a fencer. So for those of you that want to fight with her, she is likely to have a sword by her side. She graduated from Yale Law School, studied economics at the University of Amsterdam, worked at the U.S. Import-Export Bank of the U.S. from 1980 to 1985. She was the senior counsel at the legal department of the World Bank from 1986 to 2007, and she is taking no prisoners. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Karen Hudis to its rainmaking time. Good morning. Good morning, Kim. What a lovely introduction. Thank you so much. Well, it's true. I have to tell you that people talk about being brave, and you are brave. Three things I've noticed in all the themes of your interviews. One, I love that you declare victory when most of us are steeped in hopelessness, powerlessness, fear, anxiety, and immobility, and an inability to mobilize. So I love and respect that you continue to declare victory in the midst of global systemic transition that's being synthetically induced by design to destroy economies around the world. So I applaud you for that. Secondly, I love that you are taking a whole systems approach and that you are augmenting what happened to you so that you become a vehicle of transformation and alchemy instead of bitterness and just a complainer. I love that. And thirdly, how it is that you have taken on the authority that you have in your voice and the way you communicate when, in fact, people think their authority comes from titles. I love that about you. So welcome to the show. Let's talk about what happened to you at the World Bank. Glad to. I can account for all three characteristics that you mentioned. First, let me tell a little anecdote joke, which is the optimist that fell from a 10-story building and said, all right, at every floor. (laughs) I've been (laughs) accused of that. But there's a reason for my optimism, and I think it's right out there. And once people know about it, I think it's easy for them to join in. And that is an extremely accurate political science analytic tool that's called a power transition model that Yasek Kugler, who is the former chair of the political science department in Claremont University, brought to the World Bank. And he developed this together with fence industry. It's 90 to 95 percent accurate. What you do is in any given scenario, you try to figure out who the groups are or people that influence a problem. That's the stakeholders. You try to figure out where they stand on the problem. You try to figure out how powerful they are. And you also try to figure out if this is their number one issue or whether it's buried on their desk. And you try to give numbers to all of these things. I test drove this model in Ghana. Yasek came with me and we were trying to figure out why a law wasn't passed that the Germans wanted for freedom of information in Ghana. And what we found out, we went to people in the country who gave us the information we needed. We plugged it into the model, and we found out that what was holding things up was the fact that the Germans wanted a perfect law, and they weren't going to get a perfect law in Ghana. They were either going to get no law, or they were going to get a law that fit Ghana and the Ghanaian circumstance. And that's always very, very important, because if you, as a lawyer, try to foist a law on a situation that the people don't own, You don't get implementation of that law. You get lawlessness and disrespect for the law. So anyway, I ran a model inside the World Bank. I didn't realize that the World Bank was a microcosm on rule of law. And what it told me back in 2004 was that if the United States did not play by the rules, 
we were going to lose the ability to appoint the president of the World Bank. Now, what is the World Bank? It's the traffic cop in the very center of the international financial system. So, of course, I should have realized when there was lawlessness that there may have been something behind what was going on. But one of my other characteristics is that I usually give the benefit of the doubt to everybody. What you see is what you get. But having been tracking this problem, I started with it in the East Asia financial crisis in the end of the 1990s. We were also trying to work on human resources reform. And what I found out at the end of that exercise, I was representing the Staff Association, was that they were not interested in trying to figure out whether the reform was working. You're always supposed to have what you call monitorable indicators to see whether you're on track or not. You know, that sort of put some red flags up. And I had actually been warned before I went into the World Bank by the man who had been there as the lawyer representing the Dutch embassy. Is that Aaron Brockes? Yes, that's right. And he told me what it was like when Robert McNamara came to the World Bank in 1968. He said, all, you know, <laughs> the SHTF, all commotion breaks out when somebody from the Pentagon comes and tries to run the World Bank. And the thing about the World Bank is that since Aaron Brockes was there, he was the longest serving general counsel, and he was there when the treaty was written for the World Bank. He actually gave the most important role to the lawyers in the World Bank. They are the ones in the very center because you've got a resident board You've got 25 executive directors, the top eight countries in the world, each get their own executive director, and the rest of the countries have to divvy up the remaining, what's 25 minus 8? No. No. 17. Uh, anyway. No. Yeah, my math <laughs> 17, is 17. Here. That's all right. But anyway, so you've got the United States, France, Germany, Saudi Arabia, Russia, Japan, China. They each have their own executive directors, and the rest divvy it up. And so if the legal department is going to allow the board a role together with the president, who used to be always from the United States because of something called the Gentleman's Agreement that was there from the beginning. It went away in 2010 because the U.S. wasn't playing by the rules. When I did this stakeholder analysis with Yasek Kugler, I could see what was on the horizon. I could see that we were going to lose our ability to appoint the president of the World Bank because of the lawlessness. And first, I did what a lawyer inside an organization like the World Bank is supposed to do, because the World Bank issues bonds on the capital markets, $180 billion worth of bonds. So that means that there's got to be transparent financial information. And if you're working in one of those organizations and you're the lawyer, it's your job to end a cover-up. And so when there was a cover-up in the Philippines that you were referring to, I have just been riding this problem ever since then, but I also did something really quite useful because I get good advice from people. And one of my legal colleagues advised me to buy a World Bank bond after I was fired illegally in retaliation for telling the U.S. Congress about the corruption. So I'm a bondholder, and that means that the World Bank is not immune from me. I sued KPMG, who were the auditing firm for the World Bank. I sued the World Bank. And the 188 ministers of finance settled my lawsuit, but I haven't been reinstated because the group that thinks it's above the law owns a firm that provides security personnel, Allied Barton. 
and the Allied Barton folks won't let me in the door. But that's all right. I'm just sort of grouping together with the rest of the 188 countries to highlight all of the corruption that's preventing me from taking my rightful position. And the thing is, the U.S. Congress put a law when it appropriated money for the World Bank, because I've been telling Congress about this problem from the get-go. So they put a condition in the appropriations. They said the effects of retaliation against the World Bank whistleblowers had to be eliminated before the U.S. capital increase for the World Bank could be dispersed. Who ushered that in, if you don't mind me asking? It was Senator Luger. Oh, he's great. He is fantastic. He is just incredible. He was the most senior member of the Senate. And with his integrity, he has saved this country. When Aaron Brockus warned you, as a protective measure about the World Bank. What were you thinking to step in? Well, I had no idea about the layers of corruption. At each and every stage, it felt like an elevator. But I'll tell you what happened. I turned 50, and one of the things the World Bank is, is it's a knowledge bank. You know, it's good and bad, and you've got a mixture of people. You've got the whistleblowers, you've got the corrupt people, you've got the people taking cover because there's this food fight going on between the corrupt people and the whistleblowers. But anyway, so we had something called a 360-degree review, which is you would give a questionnaire to people that you worked with, whether they reported to you, whether they were your colleagues, whether you reported to them. And I got a nearly perfect score on the question, tell senior management what they're doing wrong. (laughs) And, you know, I (laughs) sort of thought about what that meant. And then we got a little technical assistance which was, don't just look at the things that you need improvement on. Look at the things that you're doing better than anybody else. That's your competitive advantage. You should do that. And, of course, I realize that people don't always like to be criticized, and certainly not the ones with the egos to match, you know, the uh, echelons of management in the World Bank. But I figured I'm getting a little long in the tooth, and if I don't do this now, when am I going to do this? Talking about the south of France, I had been on vacation in the south of France that summer, fabulous place, (laughs) and we went to a chateau which was owned by a former lawyer who left his job in a major firm in France to own this beautiful chateau, which he would then rent out for tourists. And I asked him, I said, how did you happen to leave this job to come and own a chateau? He said, well, the chateau was in my family. It had belonged to my aunt. And she died and couldn't pay taxes, so it was being sold on auction. And as I drove past, I said to myself, if you don't buy that chateau, I'll never love you again. (laughs) (laughs) Did you? so I thought, I have to be credible to myself. (laughs) I have to start telling senior management what they're doing wrong. And the thing about it is once you start out that way, it's kind of like a tightrope. It's pretty much a one-way street. You can't go back and take back what you've said. So, you know, I've just sort of been riding this bucking bronco to, you know, mix metaphors. But I'll tell you what the metaphor is that describes the best, what the thing is that I think I've been doing. Think about the Wizard of Oz and think about the role of Toto pulling the curtains back. Actually, it's a group of World Bank whistleblowers because we've all been reporting the same thing and we're all working together. We have shown the world what is at the very center. And I can give you two examples. I'm a lawyer, right? I went to the Board on Professional Responsibility of the D.C. Bar to tell them that the lawyer inside the World Bank had falsified documents against me. He used whiteout. I said, you've got to disbar this guy. Well, they didn't disbar him. And then I'm working together with a Scottish whistleblower named Elaine Colville, who is just fabulous. 
And together we've gotten statements up in UK Parliament. Once we did that, this model that I was telling you about that's 95% accurate, it predicted that we were going to get rule of law. Anyway, getting back to the accounting profession, we have reported KPMG to the Financial Reporting Council, and we found out that accountants do a very bad job of policing other accountants, same as the lawyers. So one of the takeaways from our experience is that you have got to revamp those two professions. They are thick as thieves, and that's not a metaphor. Well, lawyers and accountants are used as instruments of both good and darkness to cook books, to do things, to write legislation, to break laws, just like everybody else. So that's part of what you're talking about. There's no immunity there. I mean, we hope and we wish that people in these professions are going to be on the bright side of doing business and doing the right thing, but they're human-like. Yeah, Kim, all you do is you say, no, lawyers, you don't get to license your profession. You fall down on the job. You do a lousy job of it. We, the people who are using your services, are going to give you the licenses, and there'll be an improvement right away. Same thing for accountants. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. I want you to consider that the water we drink is crucial to our health and well-being. I also want you to consider that chronic dehydration is the precursor to a disease state. The work of Dr. Batman Jellich demonstrates this. Many of us are trying to find alkalized water to drink, thinking that's going to be the answer to impacting our health and well-being. Most of us don't know that if we cannot get our body hydrated, we cannot achieve continuous alkalinity, which is a promoter of health and well-being. The physics of water is totally distinct from the chemistry of water. And until you understand what that means to health and wellness, you can be lost in trying to understand what is good healthy water to drink. Dr. Jacques Benveniste was right when he said that water has memory and is alive. And Dan Nelson is right when he says there's a distinction between irrigating the body and hydrating it. And most of us attempt to hydrate it by drinking more water. Cells cannot assimilate most of the water that we drink, so our cells are dehydrated all the time. Learn the science about this by going to the Positron Group and consider purchasing Wayback Water, the fast track to hydration by Dan Nelson, who's a physicist, an educator, and a man who's committed that we have healthy, remarkable drinking water. Go to waybackwater.com or call Nancy Ainsley at 870-741-5877. And back to the show. I wanted to bring something up to you, a couple of things. I want to go off the grid of the traditional scenario that we're talking about right now, which is really not traditional because corruption is centralized at this point. As I shared with you both, I interviewed Guy Kramer from Hyperstealth Biotechnology Corporation that went live the other day. And basically, he has created fractal camouflage that allows the weapon and the soldier to disappear in the battlefield. And I said to him, you know, I'm a former tournament tennis player of 13 years. I'm an attack style player. If we were playing tennis together and I served the ball and you hit it back and I hit it back and you disappear, but when you disappear, the ball comes to a totally different area of the court. Are we still playing the same game? And his answer, and I'm paraphrasing it, is no, I'm the one who has the advantage and you have the disadvantage. And I thought this was very telling about a part of the thinking, which is also in law, which is also in military thinking. 
basically getting leverage and winning at any cost. The reason I ask that question is because at that level, we're not in the same game and we're not playing tennis because one of the fundamental assumptions of the game is that I can see you moving around. That's part of the fundamental assumption of the game. So when that shifts and all other types of technology are brought into the world from direct energy weapons and other things that are used and drones that read people's heartbeats and something called the CHAMP, which is a $40 million Boeing plane that can send an EMP into any area at once and they're in huge production of this, we are not in the same world we think we're in. And I've said this to many people in the area of finance. Many of us talk about being in an economic playing field. And when we talk about economics, we think we're talking about the same thing. We even think we're talking about the same frame of reference. And most of us are not. When I was with Terry Dion in London, and Ellen Brown joined Terry Dion and I even before that to talk about credit default swaps and derivatives, There is no cognition that this is off the charts of what is economically appropriate and sound and integrous and decent. There isn't the recognition, nor is there with high-frequency trading, when you can trade trillions of dollars in seconds and alter markets. I asked James Turk, who I adore, and I love gold money, and I'm a gold advocate, but I'm also a public banking advocate, and I'm also a Bitcoin advocate. But I asked him, do you really think that we're in a free marketplace with an ability to short and do puts on companies like this? In other words, betting on destruction or naked short selling. And he said, yes, he feels that that is part of the free market. Well, I fundamentally disagree. So we're all coming together, but we're not on the same playing field. And when we talk about economics and what's appropriate, everywhere I look with all the people I've interviewed, all the studying I've done, All the people I've met, between the international laws that Bruce Wiseman dealt with in his movie and book, Crisis by Design, just look at the Global Monetary Authority, who has dictatorial control and policing over the 55 members of the central banks. In your experience or understanding, what is the Global Monetary Authority's relationship with the World Bank, and do you know? Yes, of course. Okay. There's something called the National Advisory Council, and then it goes on for a few words, on international monetary and economic policies, the NAC. That's chaired by the Secretary of the Treasury, and it's got the chairman of the Fed on it. And I've been writing Ben Bernanke for years about why the World Bank's financial statements were not following the rules. You were going on, Kim, about what it is that's making the powers that be much stronger, but you forgot one of the things that's helping us, we, the people, and that is the Internet. And so far, the Internet freedom has been sufficient so that even though the mainstream media, some people call it the lame street media, is owned and controlled by the forces that are concentrating economic power, They have not prevented my story from getting out. I was fired in 2007, so the first four years I was just flailing around. But then I got to know a whistleblower named Mark Nowitzki, who was fired by Teletech because he didn't like the kinds of things they were doing in selling all of the consumer data to the government. Anyway, he showed me how to find the alternative media. And as my story gained traction and people were able to spread it among themselves in all the countries of the world, guess what? We're winning, and we have won. As far as I'm concerned, no matter what we're talking about, I will stand with you in declaring we're winning and we've won until there's full manifestation of that. And I can hang out in that 
no matter what it looks like, even in the transition and chaos, even in what appears to be a stacked deck and all that. But it's interesting to me, and the reason that I wanted to bring up this global monetary authority is, for example, the government of Bangladesh went to Mohammed Yunus, who built the Grameen Bank, built it over a billion dollars, showed and demonstrated that we don't need banks to be collateralizing loans to anybody, did it for over 30 years, and then the government of Bangladesh came up to him and said, get out, you're done, you're 70 years old, you're too old, and kicked him out. The guy was fighting for two years, okay? He got the Nobel Prize, this and that. Now, first, I want to confirm what you said about the internet. If it weren't for the internet, nobody would even know who Kim Greenhouse is, and nobody would know who you are, nobody would know who Ellen Brown is, or anybody else that's been on this show, or anywhere else. However, in my experience, there is an oversaturation of internet voices that makes competing as a show a totally different ball of wax than in the mainstream media. So I want you to know that the playing field is highly saturated with anybody who can put their mouth in front of a microphone, A. B, I appreciate the opportunity and the occasion that the internet is, which is why I have stepped in to do this no matter what. Kim Greenhouse was denied access to mainstream media for five years. Even public broadcasting stations denied my participation. NPR, PRI, stations across America. And one of the things I was asked was, what's my religious affiliation and what are my politics? Major stations asked me that. I was asked to sign contracts that were totally one-sided and outrageous, including that if I got my show going and I talked about something that somebody in the audience was offended by, they could pull my show. Well, I would never sign a contract like that. So what I want to say to you as counsel is that the legal field could be, and I know just listening to you that you're already at this, you are generating something, using it to create, using it to mobilize, using it to structure things, using it in a totally different way. But I can't say that the vast majority of people in your profession are dedicated the way you are and are doing what you're doing. So to me, when Muhammad Yunus was kicked out of his bank post-Nobel Prize, it happened not just because it was political or geopolitical, which it was. Somebody had the authority to do it, and that authority was given away in his contract. The authority is everything, what you can and can't do, and who has the right to do anything. And I hear you talk about it often, Karen, and I want to know your response to this. It's all a matter of how you define yourself, how you limit yourself. Really, the very first thing you have to do, and this is one of the reasons I think I'm still in the game, is you have to see your own shadow side. You have to see those aspects of yourself that aren't so pretty that you don't want to understand and you don't want to accept. And the message that I'm bringing for people to get to the positive side, they have to go through their shadow side. They have to recognize what it is that the United States has meant to the rest of the world, not what we think we meant, but what we actually meant. I don't know if you think this is a responsive answer, Kim, but well, it's definitely you know, an answer off think, the grid. Of, I think it works. Yeah. I guess my question is with respect to the authority side, because at the end of the day, every contract and every treaty and everything that's written, that's an agreement between people, there is authority that's declared and issued in which people agree or disagree about it. And so to start a next generation economy, a whole new economy for the better, no matter how many levels and layers and platforms we have to work with, whether it's gold and Bitcoin and state banking, the point is we need lawyers who get it. 
We need whole systems lawyers who get how that has to be done to protect what is coming so that what happened to Dr. Yunus of the Grameen Bank never happens to the disruptive next generation, but highly, highly effective, good companies and institutions that get set up next. Do you agree with me on that? I was being kind. I'm going to be unkind. Yunus was duped. Before he's going to get anywhere the next time, and I don't think 70 is the time to retire, before he's going to get anywhere, he's got to recognize that he allowed himself to be duped, okay? I agree with you. And the same thing for, you know, it's not I'm going to give this contract to the lawyers. If you hire a lawyer that's not representing you or you don't hire a lawyer, the buck stops with each individual. You have to see yourself and you have to see your strengths and weaknesses and you have to see your weaknesses with all their warts before you can start doing things right. I think what you're saying is true, that he was, I'm going to say instead of duped, I mean, I know what you mean when you say that, but out of respect to him and what he built and what he did, he really dissolved the belief and myth that you have to put up collateral to get a loan, otherwise it won't work. He showed that it can work. He didn't really bring it here. I mean, they brought a few micro loans here that they played with. But I want to say, I don't know that he didn't have legal counsel by his side, but whoever he had by his side for this agreement in order to do Grameen, at the end, the government had the authority to come in and extract it from him. Whether it's Bitcoin or Ellen Brown with bringing in public banking throughout the United States or any type of transactions where companies are actually doing business in gold and silver and platinum, What I'm saying to you is that we have to have reputable people that understand systemic issues and how people can come in if you don't have the authority written in the agreements properly. If you don't have a good whole systems agreement, it's likely you could build something and still have it extracted from you. And it doesn't matter who you are, even if you have the Nobel Prize, even if you're the biggest mucky muck in your industry, even if you think you're immune, even if you have hundreds of millions of dollars. Basically, I'm just making a call to the legal field that we need you. We need you differently. We need the legal field to help in this area of venture creation and trade creation and this whole next level of economy. That's what I'm saying to you. When you find out what the lawyers have done in their profession to siphon money away from people and land it smack in the middle of the Vatican, and this sounds really like I've lost it, but I have not. They've done it cleverly. They have taken our states and they've created corporations out of them. It sounds like I've lost it. No, it doesn't sound like you've lost it. I know what you're talking about. They have taken babies, Social Security numbers, and they have issued bonds. Bonds, yes. And, okay, this was all done by lawyers. This was all hidden from the people by lawyers. I think there has to be a fundamental shift in not delegating the ability. When you go into a court, you are not in a real court. Right. You are in a a military court. court. Yes. This was done by the legal profession, and it gets worse and worse and worse. So, no, I'm not with you that we have got to transform our lawyers. Well, I'm actually, I'm actually, well, look, the fact of the matter is if I'm doing a deal with another country or another person or another corporation, guess what? I write my agreements myself, but I, and by the way, I think all agreements should be worked out all the terms and conditions and issues and concerns by the parties themselves and then have somebody, but I'm not out to transform the legal profession. I just know that there are good, upstanding lawyers that are ready to help facilitate things getting done because whether you and I like it or not, we live in lawlessness as a matrix. There are so many laws everywhere you turn. 
I'm not saying delegate total authority to a lawyer. I'm saying we need generational lawyers to help facilitate different things that are going on. That's basically it. What, what I'm trying to say is that, look, if it weren't for laws, we wouldn't be able to take back our power. I'm not saying I'm against law. I'm not saying I don't want law. I'm saying that the way the legal profession has acted is so fundamentally flawed that we have got to really start with a different kind of a paradigm. I agree with you. I'm with you on that. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to invite in another lawyer, God help us all, the author of the book Web of Debt, The Shocking Truth About Our Monetary System and How We Can Break Free, the author of a new book called The Public Banking Solution from Austerity to Prosperity, Ellen Brown is the chairman of the Public Banking Institute. It is already working in the United States and catching on, and 20 states are considering some form of state banking legislation. We have had her on with Farid Kavari, who is running for governor in the state of Florida, Terry Duyon at B&B Finance out of England to talk about derivatives and credit default swaps. I've talked to her about high-frequency trading and free markets. She also joined us with Dave Krieger, the author of Clouded Titles, How Over 70,000 Titles to Properties in the United States Are Clouded. Ladies and gentlemen, give a warm welcome to Ellen Brown. (laughs) Thanks, Kim, and thanks, Karen. Great to talk to you. I would have called the Bank for International Settlements the center of the private global banking system rather than the World Bank, but I'm very interested in what is corrupt about it. I mean, of course, we all believe it's corrupt. (laughs) I can understand like one bank, the Philippine bank, was corrupt. But of the whole system, Karen, what's your perception of the whole system and how it functions and what needs to be done to fix it? Of course, my thing is public banking. I think it needs to be owned by the people, controlled by the people, and the profits need to go back to the people. But your professional experience, what you've seen, what specific corruption have you seen? Well, first of all, I agree with everything that you just said. And when I said that the World Bank and International Monetary Fund were at the center of the international financial system, I was not talking about private. I was not talking about public. I was talking about it, the whole thing about currency. How is money made? And for people who don't understand how money is made, there are some very good videos that describe it. What's supposed to happen is what John F. Kennedy was trying to do when he was assassinated, what Lincoln had done, and that is to have the Treasury Department issue the currency. If you have it the way we have it, where the Federal Reserve issues the currency, first the Treasury issues a note to the Federal Reserve that has interest on it. So our debt is going to grow because we have to pay interest to the Fed. So that's the first thing, just the very way that our money is issued. That is corrupt. That is wrong. That has got to stop. And that will stop. You know, that's from the get-go. But the other thing that's corrupt is the way you now have all of this secret economic power that people don't know about, but that was actually discovered by the Federal Institute of Technology. Three mathematicians modeled the ownership of the 43,000 transnational companies. And what they found out was that there was a super entity that was in control And this entity is doing all this trading, and the Securities and Exchange Commission is absolutely giving them the right to do insider trading before anybody else gets the leftovers. So that's the broad brush. And then you can go into painful detail about what's wrong. But just to let people know where we are, because we've had centuries of this corrupt banking system, where we are 
is that the world's wealth has been hidden from the rest of the people in the world. There's 170,500 metric tons of gold in a vault in the Bank of Hawaii. There's 130,500 metric tons in Amex Hong Kong. There's 150,000 metric tons in Development Bank of Singapore. That's 451,000 metric tons. That's more than double the amount of gold that people think is above Earth. Then there's an additional amount of 100,000 metric tons, which are in other American banks. And there's also some buried gold. And the price of gold is manipulated. You know, and then I can go on and on, and I don't want to bore people. But, I mean, just when you see that kind of a system, that is corruption from the get-go. Yeah, I agree. As I understood, the World Bank and the IMF worked as a team, and originally the World Bank went in and set up these projects, as we saw in Confessions of an Economic Hitman by John Perkins, <laughs> that the World Bank would go in and set up projects that the country didn't necessarily need, like dams and nuclear power plants that they had trouble paying for, and then the interest rates were raised to 20% in the 1980s. And these were all variable loans, and so this trapped the third world in debt, and that was sort of a goal. Was that your perception? or I mean, my ex-husband worked for USAID, and he was boots on the ground, and all the people we knew were honest, you know, all trying to do their jobs. And it was somewhere at the top, like you were saying, when the politicians get control, it really gets corrupted. So I just wondered your own personal experience after no, 20 years. No, painting with a very broad brush. In the first place, the very poorest countries get low interest rate loans over 30 years. It's like 2%. There's two-thirds grant element in those loans. And also, if a country has a good government, then they're going to choose projects that have a very high payback, and they're actually going to grow. So it's not the concept that's bad. What's bad is the way you've got the president of the World Bank being appointed by the super entity, and then going into countries with corrupt governments to do corrupt projects that don't benefit the country residents. That's what's bad about it. Can you talk about the super entity, Karen, please? Yes, I would be delighted to talk about the super entity. <laughs> and the by super the way, entity anybody that <laughs> wants to read about the study, all you have to do actually is Google the name of a German journalist named Schall, S-C-H-A-L-L, and my last name. And he wrote an article that gives links to all of these studies. Anyway, the super entity, <laughs> uh, it's all of the banks that we know and love and their holding companies, Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, Citibank, Deutsche Bank, you know, the two big-to-fail entities. They're really all one entity through the same directors that migrate from one of those boards to the other. That's who they are. So is it a legal entity, or is it what you would call a synchronization of networks of people? It's a combine. It's a conglomerate. Look what that group did in the case of the LIBOR rate-fixing scandal. There is not a single price that they have not worked together in combination. I mean, look at the antitrust laws. That's what they are. They work in combination. Do you have anything to say about that, Ellen? So where's the cutoff? I mean, if we're just talking about interlocking directorates, I could see where, you know, you could have all sorts of links. But in what sense are they a super entity like they're all talking together? The Bilderberger Group, for instance, I would call a sort of super entity where they actually meet and they decide on what the plan is for this year and they act in a coordinated way and they support each other. As That's opposed right. And you have to... the Trilateral Commission and you also have something called the Knights of Malta and when they say all roads lead to Rome or follow the money, 
it goes back to the Jesuits, and the Jesuits now own Citibank. They used to own Bank of America. So that's who it is. And anybody who thinks that that group does not buy up all of our politicians in the U.S. Congress simply has to look at what happened when this group had it in their playbook to have World War III in Syria. So just look at the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations and how much money they had gotten the various people that voted to have bombing start in Syria. That's how this all works. Can you talk a little bit about state capture and go a little slow with our audience here on this? Really lay it out. Okay. I can show this in very good detail. If you look at Standard & Poor's and Moody's and Fitch ratings that are giving credit ratings to the U.S., this group is supposed to talk about whether it's risky, whether there is rule of law in the United States or not. This group didn't do that. So as a result, the Soviet Union and China have set up a fourth credit rating group. And the United States credit rating is really on the line now. That's called the Unified Credit Rating Group. But look at the SEC. The man (laughs) who it turned out was not allowing the SEC to correct the World Bank's inaccurate financial statements. He ended up as the general counsel of the International Finance Corporation. Look at how many secretaries of the Treasury have come from Goldman Sachs. These people just act with total impunity. One day they're government. Look at who's currently chairing our Securities and Exchange Commission. State capture is when the organs of the government that are supposed to represent the people are actually representing somebody quite different. That's what we have here. And the worst, I can say, gap in the system is the fourth estate, when the journalists are not allowed to tell the stories that the people need to hear because they will then not be employable by any of the newspapers or television stations because they're all owned by this super entity. That is a recipe for disaster. So you've got one corrupt entity, which is the Jesuits, handpicking who the people are that are going to present a facade of normalcy. This whole system is just being dismantled like a house of cards. We've seen it, we've diagnosed it, and it's out there for enough people who know to get their news from the alternative media and from reporters like you, Kim. What do you think about the Glass-Steagall Act and where it is right now and the fact that it's not in force, it's been repealed? What if it were brought back? Do you have any thoughts about that? I want to ask both you and Ellen. Glass-Steagall, I actually happened to go there to the U.S. Congress on the day that Warren had reintroduced it. I had sent an email to all of the members of the Senate Banking Committee, and there were two people. (laughs) There was the chairman, I've forgotten his name, and there was Warren, and the rest of the room was totally empty, because if people want to get reelected, they have got to be dancing to the tune of the corrupt people that we're talking about with all this money in the pack. So, yeah, it may very well be that they will get some kind of a law on the books. I mean, laws have got to be implemented. What you have right now is you have a system where the people who are supposed to be protected are totally ignorant because they have no information about what's actually going on. And then you've got these very complex laws that get written so that people are creating a fiefdom for themselves. So even if you did get Glass-Steagall back on the books, the way we are going about regulating is absolutely designed to fail. Look at the two-party system and how that's been totally captured because of this corruption that I've been talking about. Right. Yeah. I don't see it as an answer. I just see it as one of the elements, like a line item that would be helpful because you do have the fusion of commercial and investment banks and then you have this gambling 
in all these areas that's then licensed. It's like licensed gambling. So I just wondered where you were at about that. And how about you, Ellen? Well, of course, I think it's a great idea. I mean, it totally would be necessary to protect our deposits from being gambled away in a big derivatives bust where ever since 2005 with the Bankruptcy Reform Act, derivatives have super priority in bankruptcy, which means they get to take the collateral before anyone else. So there's not going to be anything left over, even for the FDIC, which currently only has $32 billion in it, to cover something like $6 trillion in deposits, including... One trillion that are in Chase and one trillion that are in Bank of America. But on the other hand, I read somewhere in a quite good article that you can't <laughs> reimpose Glass-Steagall because, I mean, if you do, what will happen is that Chase will collapse because they've got $32 trillion in interest rate swaps and everything is leveraged on top of everything else. I mean, you've got leverage on leverage and the little tiny P at the bottom that's supporting this whole leveraged thing is our deposits. So if you pull that little thing out of the bottom, then the whole pyramid collapses. So from my point of view, other than the fact that I actually have a Chase account, but, you know, I don't mind seeing the whole thing collapse, except that if it all goes at once, you know what will happen. People will lose their deposits. That's when you're liable to have riots in the streets. That was what was feared, supposedly, by Henry Paulson and Gordon Brown the first time when we had the collapse in 2008. They were anticipating that there would be riots in the streets unless they got the bailouts, which they did get. And now we have Department of Homeland Security that's just stocked up with 1.6 billion rounds of ammunition and a bunch of big tanks. I mean, what are they going to use those tanks for? That's supposed to be domestic law enforcement, not going to war. So somebody is anticipating a great big something on the order of a revolution or a serious civil unrest. Ellen, that's what they want because they have no dollars at this point, and they're not getting it because we've got something quite different. We're going to be issuing dollars with a Treasury Department, and we're going to be phasing out the Fed. Does the Fed know that? Of course they know that. They are the ones that have been having the quantitative easing. (laughs) They're the ones that have been trying to collapse the dollar, because they thought they were going to get a single world currency until the BRICS nations set them straight. Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa have said that they are going to finance the trade among themselves and then pay for the difference in dollars, in gold. So that's 25% of world trade that U.S. is no longer going to be having dollars financed. So then the Fed figured, well, let's have the Amero, and they're trying to have some kind of civil unrest so they can clamp down and introduce that because nobody wants their currency to be issued and combined with Canada and Mexico. They're just flailing around because they thought that we were going to be caught flat-footed, and we're not. There's not going to be any martial law. Why would we have martial law? We simply have clean currency backed by assets. Sure, if you and I were (laughs) in control, we could fix the system overnight. But I'm talking about when, let's say, they reinstate Glass-Steagall, and suddenly there's nothing to back the repos that are supporting these derivatives that, you know, the other side of the bets that Chase is on. Okay, let's just go into the market. Let's look at what gold is doing vis-a-vis dollar. Look at the fact that you have had no leasing of gold. Look at the fact that Germany repatriated its gold. And never got it. the United States (laughs) refused for seven years of the Fed. And then look at the fact that a German helicopter buzzed the consulate in Frankfurt. All of these countries, I have been writing them for five years. All of these countries know that I have gotten through to sufficient people 
in the United States that they understand that the 170,500 metric tons of gold that's on deposit in Bank of Hawaii is intended for us. That was what Kennedy was going to use. And we have it. Why would we worry? We have it. Has it been we verified? Just, Has it been you vetted? And I can't get this done. You don't think when people know about the dishonesty that their government has perpetrated, that they're not going to demand a cleanup. And the fact of the matter is that we've got Article 5 in our Constitution, which gives state legislatures the right to demand a constitutional convention. You had 35 countries demanding this in 1929 when Wisconsin demanded it. And by now we have 49 states. Are you telling me that we cannot have a constitutional convention? Of course we can. We are simply taking back our right. It's not and if or but. It's there for us, and we're simply doing it. But I'm talking about the day the Chase Bank puts out a notice that you cannot get your deposits. You know, they shutter the place going to and they're happen. closed. You're not hearing me. We have 170,500 metric tons of gold to back dollars issued by the Treasury Department. And have you, have now, you seen... Chase can be in bankruptcy. Chase can have a Chapter 7 workout. We can just sort of let Chase writhe around on its own because that's where it's going to be. We're not going to liquidate it because there are people that work there. We will take our own sweet time with a workout for Who's all the of we? these crooks. Karen, just a quick question. One is when you say we, who do you mean by the we? And second of all, the 175,000 tons of gold that's in Hawaii, has that been vetted as real, authentic, whatever? Yes, it's gold. in the vault. I know okay. that it's in the vault. We said that stuff's in Fort Knox, and it wasn't no, real No, no, it is there. Okay, I'll okay. tell you how I know about this. And by the way, it's not just my word. There's a member of parliament in the UK that has also referred to this because I think Bank of Scotland or UBS had a $15 trillion transfer. It's real gold, and it's really there. Because what happened is that the gold from the colonies, and then in World War II, there was a lot of gold that was taken by Yamashito, and it was in the Philippines for a while. The Vatican had it for 15 years. It is there. There's a lot of documentation on it, and that was the gold that was going to underpin the dollar in an agreement that JFK signed. It's called the Green Hilton Agreement, just 11 days before he was assassinated. That's why he was killed. There is a lot of information on this gold, and it's real, and it is there for us. Why are we going to take haircuts of deposits when there's this real gold that belongs to us? So what's the next step, then? Well, from, I think, can ahead, I answer Karen. that? Yeah, I think because they, who are in control of the government, want the haircuts. They want our deposits. I mean, there That's was a, right, and they're hiding our gold so that we will be hoodwinked, and we know about it, and we're not hoodwinked. But we don't have control of the government. That's the point. And if we somebody have a constitutional does. convention, who's to prevent us from taking control? And that's exactly <laughs> what we're going to do. But wait, wait, wait. Hold on, Karen. Hold on just a little bit. Take a breath and say what you're trying to say, Ellen, because I think you need more space to say it. Go ahead. Take Egypt or any other country that people are starving and they start rioting in the streets and then martial law is imposed. How do we step in and say, wait, wait, we want to have a constitutional convention. We've got new ideas. We can fix this. I mean, I can fix it right now, but nobody's asking me. I mean, I'm not in a position of power. And it looks to me like the IMF recently came out with a paper that said the way you could fix the Eurozone crisis is to give a haircut on all savings of 10%. And this would balance up the books of all the Eurozone countries. So they're actually thinking about stuff like that. Now, what if they step up and do that? 
Are we going to say, no, wait, that's our money. We have a different idea. We know how to fix it. We'll just print the money, have the central bank print the money. But, I mean, we know that, that that would fix it. But we're not in power, and how are we supposed to get in power? I think they want that haircut. They want to take our money, and they're looking for a chance. And they want that police state. They want to have control, and they're ready for it. They're looking for any trigger if, in fact, Chase goes bankrupt, they do a bail-in and they start to take the people's deposits, there's liable to be some rioting, and that will be the excuse for the Department of Homeland Security to step up and start putting people in those camps that we've heard about. Okay, Karen, i got to ask you something. Hold on one second. Before Kim, you... wait, let me just answer this because I'm so grateful that I had the opportunity. All right, go ahead. Just think of what I was telling you about Toto the dog that pulled the curtain back. The people are looking at the wizard, and they're not buying it anymore, Ellen. So all of that fear-mongering stuff that you just said would have worked perfectly if Toto hadn't pulled back the curtain and showed the wizard with the levers. But people have seen that. So we're not buying that scenario. That scenario is not applicable. Here's what I want to say, Karen. First of all, remember when the White House chief of staff in this administration, former, said, don't ever let a good crisis go to waste. When you talk about not to worry about depositors not getting their money because of all this gold, let's say that's in Hawaii and these other locations you talked about, how would it work in the logistics area if, in fact, something happens with Chase and the depositors do lose their money? How will the people that are holding 175,000 tons of gold be able to get people back their money? They won't know who they are. You know what I'm saying? There's a logistical thing. I don't think you are grasping the value of this gold and the quantity of this gold and the fact that this gold is there and the fact that the authorized signatory is writing an agreement so that this gold will be backing the U.S. dollar. I do I don't get think that. You're no, I, I do get that. I totally okay. get that. And so, I'm excited so about that. Have you heard of Chapter 7? Yes. Bankruptcy? Okay. So that's how it'll work. Well, and tell, tell the audience. Tell the audience. And systematically be closed, not in a rush. And if you're saying, well, these banks are now underwater, that's fine. Don't forget the Fed has been issuing bonds to all of the countries and people that gave this gold. That's going to be offset, dollar for dollar. So all of these crooks that have been ripping off the world for centuries are all of a sudden going to have to pay the piper. Okay, I get that. Slowly and carefully with all of the countries watching on and all of the people in the world watching on. Okay, hold on one second because, you know, you're at a certain level of elevation in your experience and expertise. I want to bring you down a little bit, Karen. Otherwise, it's going to sound like just an internal conversation we're all having. Okay, we have national debt that we have to pay interest on, right? What if those banks that have issued this debt to us all of a sudden have got to pay back the money they owe? Yeah, they owe this money when they took the gold. It's like surgery. They are going to be whittled down. There'll be a toothpick left. (laughs) And we're going to do it very slowly and carefully so that people don't lose their jobs. Do you get it, Ellen? My concern, I mean, you said, don't you know about Chapter 7, but you know the new thing. No, you said 7, actually. Bail-ins which are that this is a rule imposed by the Financial Stability Board, which the G20 has signed on to. We've all agreed to be regulated by their rules. And they imposed a rule in 2010 or 2011, I forget. Anyway, they set up this template where they said, now it's obvious that governments are no longer willing to bail out the systemically important or systemically risky banks. And so all those banks were supposed to come up with living wills, which set out what they would do in the event of a bankruptcy. 
because they're not going to be able to get it from the government anymore. And in fact, Dodd-Frank specifically says that we're not going to bail them out from a big derivatives bus. So the living will plan is that they will turn their creditors' money into stock. So they'll recapitalize themselves by taking their creditors' money. Well, it turns out that depositors are the largest class of creditor of any bank, and we saw the beginnings of that in Cyprus. But now we've seen these bail-in plans pop up all over the world, and they're all following the templates set by the Financial Stability Board in 2010. So that's absolutely what they plan to do, is one day they will do exactly what was done in Cyprus. They will say, you can't get your deposits. We're taking a portion of them, or we're taking all of them. What will happen is the derivatives claimants will grab the collateral ahead of the bankruptcy, just like they did in the Lehman Brothers collapse. And that Why are will... we ignoring the gold that exists in the world? Because it has been hidden. It is no longer hidden. It is coming out. Wait, can you wait one second, Karen? Just let, her, just let her finish that part. But I don't the gold has to do with it. One day, we're going to find that we can't get our deposits, and people will freak out at that. If they can't get food, they'll start breaking windows, and they'll be well, right. I, we are just in a scare and fear mode. Why are we insisting on being there? Why, why not don't just have be, to be there. Karen, why not just be in a concern mode? That's a non-problem. Okay, here, let me just give you an analogy, Okay. There is a benefactor that has all this money that is giving it to us. It's not giving it to us. It's going to back our currency. We are going to be in a situation where we no longer have to pay interest on our debt. This is going to be job stimulating. This is going to be good news. Why do we insist on being in bad news? Well, this it's not bad news. It's talking. Cats. It's not necessarily. used to go out the door because well, they're house cats. Hold on. The door is wide open and they refuse to go out. Hold on, Karen. Hold on a second. I think perhaps you're oversensitive to the fact that there are concerns. I'm not interested in bad news. I'm not interested in conspiracy theories. I'm not interested in darkening the public mind. We're doing this to elevate the public mind and to expand the understanding of what's occurring. But nobody is engaging with what I've said about 15 times. Well, we're not we're ready to yet. Past each other. We're it's not, not ready. A productive no, conversation. No, 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 no. It's not a non-productive conversation. We're not yes, done. Yes, it's very non-productive. Either we're going to talk about the gold that exists and is on deposit for the United States, or it's two ships passing in the night. Well, wait a minute. We deal with conversation or we don't. Well, first of all... What's your data, first of all, that this gold does exist? The data that the gold exists is the fact that I have seen all of the documentation and look at what went on with the Green Hilton Agreement and look at the various people that have referred to this gold. It is real. It exists. What is the Green Hilton Agreement? This is the agreement that John F. Kennedy signed 10 days before he was assassinated that applied the gold to the Treasury, and the Treasury would be issuing our currency, no longer issued by the Fed, no longer for the U.S. to pay interest on the debt. We would now have currency that was issued by the Treasury Department, and there's no national debt involved in issuing U.S. currency. Sorry, what was the first name? Hilton? Green Green is the first word, and then Hilton, H-I-L-T-O-N. It was in 1963 that this agreement was signed. And right. then JFK was killed because the greedy bankers and the Jesuits wanted to keep Americans impoverished. And you keep talking about the impoverished scenario. We are not going to stay there. You're what talking you about haircuts. You're talking about losing deposits. You're talking about a You're scenario about- where we in this country do not have gold backing our currency. That's not going to continue. 
Karen, I want to invite you to relax a little bit with us. We're going to get to everything that you want to talk about. Can I ask both of you to respond to where you're at with the creation and the development of Bitcoin? Go ahead and start with you, Ellen. Well, I don't really understand how it's created. So I don't really understand the mechanism. And I know it's gone way, way up. And of course, obviously, we should have bought when it was at 30. But to me, it's scary because it looks like it's a bubble and it could easily crash. So I've heard people say that it's risky to hold it long term, you know, like an investment. But it's a very good way to buy something internationally without having your deal reported if that's what your goal is. So I'm not really an expert on that. I don't know. How about you, Karen? Well, the cryptocurrencies, what I like about them is that they are not controlled by the government. And I think we're going to be entering a scenario where there's a lot of options for currency. A lot of the states are now considering declaring the precious metals as legal tender, which is what they're entitled to do under the Constitution. And I think what you're also going to be having is in various local jurisdictions, you're going to have groups of communities issuing, they call it time banks. You can barter your time for local goods and services. This is a wonderful option. It's going to create a lot of employment. Just think about how towns can flourish if they all are bartering their goods and time. You know, I see Bitcoin as exactly what Ellen was saying, that it's a good way to pay for a transaction. I think it's a terrible idea as a store of value. Supposing you forget your password and you can't retrieve the many, many thousands of Bitcoins you had that you thought you were going to keep for yourself. So I think it's not like a bank account, but I think it's one more option for how to pay for something. What do you think of gold, Ellen? I know I've had you on several times and you've shared a bit about that, but I think it would be neat to just share your perspective with Karen and the rest of us here. And I'm a big gold bug, so I sit at a very different perspective than you about it, but I'd like you to share it with the audience and with Karen again. What is your issue with gold? What are your concerns about it? And when you said you could fix the economy really easily, I want you to share that with us, okay? Mm -hmm. All right, go ahead. Well, I, too, am an owner of gold. It's certainly a good investment. I have nothing against gold. But the idea that we should get rid of paper money and return to gold won't work because economies run on credit. They have many times more credit than there is whatever they started with. I mean, if it's gold or reserves or whatever... Antel Fekete, I don't know if I said his name right, you interviewed him, I think. Yes. He took the example of a drug, I think he said a drug that had 90 businesses in the chain of development of this drug. I mean, each one added its little thing and then sold it to the next party in the chain, and it was sold for $100. Each one borrowed to pay for workers and materials before the product sold and whenever it is that they actually get paid. So each one borrowed. And so you have all these loans supporting this one little $100 product, and the loans added up to $5,000. So where are you going to find people who are willing to lend their gold if you only allow one-to-one? Gold can only belong to person A or person B. I mean, they can't both be holding it at the same time, or it can't be the basis of some sort of electronic money that back. It simply won't work. 
we need credit, and to me, what will work is to allow credit to be issued by a public entity. You know, if we, the people, are issuing it and we get the interest, we get the profits from this, and it's directed in ways that serve the economy rather than being exploitative and extractive like what we have now, then it's perfectly fine to be issuing credit I would say back by nothing. I wouldn't even have reserves. You just issue credit. Really what money is, is turning people's credit into money. If you went to the grocery store and you said, I'm going to get paid on Friday here, take my IOU, the grocer won't do it because he doesn't know who you are and he's not sure you're going to get paid or that you'll hand it over to him. So you go to a bank and you say, here, take my IOU, and the bank checks you out. They find out who you are. They know what to attach if you don't pay. They find out what kind of collateral you've got, et cetera. And then they will turn your IOU into money. In fact, I've seen it said that money is actually spendable IOUs. So there's no reason that you have to borrow that IOU from someone else. All they've done is certify who you are and that you're going to pay it back. That's double-entry bookkeeping. That's how banks create money is they write it on one side of their books as an asset to themselves and on the other side of their books as a liability to themselves, and that creates credit, which creates money. And the whole idea of being backed by something, they don't even need the deposits until the checks go to clear, and then they have a period of time to balance their books so they can actually be borrowing back the very money that they just created. So that's how banking works. So it sounds a bit corrupt because they are creating money on their books and they're getting the benefit from it. But if that whole system were basically just a mutual credit clearing system, in other words, one great big community currency and the community is our entire country, to me, that would work. And that's a sound system. It's the whole problem of sound money. The euro is rather like gold where they're just not letting any more into the system. And there's never enough to pay principal and interest when the credits only come into the system as principal. That's my issue is that it's going to create a depression. There's not going to be enough money out there to create the credit needed to run an economy. Karen, would you like to respond to that? Yeah. I'm not saying that you can't have currency that's paper. I'm simply saying that the currency is not issued by the Fed after the Treasury issues a note to the Fed. I'm saying cut out the middleman. I'm saying let the Treasury Department issue the currency itself. And that's actually the only way that the Constitution said the money was supposed to flow. The Federal Reserve System is unconstitutional to begin with. And it was only enacted in 1913 in almost a monetary coup where all of the members of Congress had gone home, except for a couple of dishonest ones that foisted that system on us. Yeah, um, I totally agree with that. And that's how the Patriot yeah. Act was done, too. Same thing. And it lamed so up Congress. It, you know, we're talking about the Fed. We're not talking about whether or not there should be paper money. Yeah, um, okay. That, no, I, I totally agree, yeah. Because the Federal Reserve notes are not real money, but though in conversation most of us refer to them as money, do you both think that we are in real debt? Is the conversation economically that, oh, the U.S. has a multi-trillion dollar debt and nobody's going to be able to repay it, is that real or is that bogus? Ellen, what do you think? Well, it's real in the sense that all of our money is debt. In other words, it's spendable IOUs. It's balanced. There's credits on one side and debts on the other. Because the government does not issue money, as it probably should, but it doesn't, except for coins, 
all of our money is borrowed into existence, and that money then becomes our money supply. So if we have a $15 trillion money supply, we should have a $15 trillion debt. It's not something to freak out about. The part that we should freak out about is the interest, and we could avoid having to pay interest on our debt if we borrowed from a government-owned bank that returned the interest to the government, which, in fact, the Fed does. It does return the interest to the government. It didn't want to, but it was forced into it in the 1960s by Wright-Patman, who tried to get the Fed abolished. He said, you're creating our money and you're charging us interest. That's not right. And so they agreed to rebate the interest. But the problem with that is that most of the debt is not held by the Federal Reserve. It's held by the Chinese, the Japanese. Well, most of it's held by Social Security and other federal agencies. But So we could get rid of the debt by just borrowing directly from our own bank, which would then, if you want to charge interest because it looks good, that's fine. But we would get to keep the interest because we are the bank. So it's just like the Bank of North Dakota is owned by the people of North Dakota and they get the interest back. So it's effectively interest-free borrowing for the state. So is public banking a way to retire the debt as well? You could just create some trillion-dollar coins and get rid of the debt. You could easily get rid of the debt. My argument would be you could replace the debt with these trillion-dollar coins, and it wouldn't be inflationary. You've just turned a $15 trillion bunch of bonds into $15 trillion coins and start writing checks against them. Karen, what do you think? Well, I think there are a lot of what they call historical bonds that were issued by the Fed when the Fed went around collecting gold from all these people. I think that's a very easy way to retire the debt, get the Fed to honor notes that it's issued that it absolutely doesn't want to do. Is there anything else that you would like to ask Ellen about before she goes to the next radio show? Yeah, I I know there are 22 states that are trying to get their own state-owned banks. How's progress on that? Well, they're still trying. (laughs) I mean, some of them have lost. They've actually brought bills. There, There are that many that have actually brought bills. There are other states where we have people working on it. And we have cities and counties that are working on it, too. And I think Philadelphia is very close to maybe having a bank in the Bay Area. San Francisco is working on it and some other smaller cities. So it's a definite possibility, but it's very hard to move politicians. It's impossible to move politicians at the federal level, I think, and that's why we work at the state level. You have more chance locally, but you need a lot of public awareness, and you need pressure from the public for populist movements to work. It always takes a lot of pressure from the public. You know, make me do it, that sort of thing. And people aren't ready to make them do it because they don't understand it yet. It's not an easy thing like going into the supermarket with your petition and say, would you like to sign my petition for lower taxes or gay rights or gay marriage or something like that? Because people know what they think about those things. But if you say, would you like to sign my petition for a publicly owned bank? They'll say, oh, we have too many banks. They don't trust government, all that kind of stuff. They don't get the concept. So we have a lot of work yet to do, but we're definitely working on it, and we've got a lot of interest and a lot of support. Karen, do you think it would be possible to have the gold sitting in Hawaii and other locations be part of funding or collateralizing a state bank? Well, this is something that's in the global collateral account. It's supposed to go to benefit the people. You know, it was Ferdinand Marcos who set that up. I think it's got to be something that's going to be decided collectively. I think we certainly want to have more local governmental involvement because, as you've seen, the corruption tends to start from the apex of the system and then sort of wind its way down. So, you know, I'm not ruling it out.
Because it would help the people, right? Right off the bat, what we want is to get the Fed off the scene. That's our first. Okay, so that's the first thing. But I was thinking since what Ellen shared, it might be interesting, though, because it's like a chicken and egg thing. Obviously, this public banking system is for the people. If it could be involved in retiring the debt, wouldn't that be cool to be funded by a gold-backed trust or gold-backed facility? The thing is, Kim, we're not in this together. You've got other countries that have their own central banks that are bilking their public. There's going to be a whole approach to this worldwide problem, worldwide corruption. One of the issues going on now is in Japan, which is the country where the debt is absolutely the highest per capita. And there, in the Bank of Tokyo, they've got, I think, 12,000 metric tons of gold. And, of course, they gave up a lot of gold, and there are a lot of bonds that can retire the Japanese debt. And I think the idea would be to have some kind of a deal worked out among all of the countries that are similarly situated. So there's a lot that's going to have to happen. And at the moment, why would the United States get a worse deal than Japan? These banks have been bilking the public for centuries. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to say goodbye right now in this segment with Karen Hudis and Ellen Brown. Karen is going to stay on, and Ellen has to go to another radio show. Ellen Brown, the author of Web of Debt and the chairman of the Public Banking Institute. You can find out more about her by going to webofdebt.com and tell them the name of your new book. The Public Bank Solution. It's been great talking to you both. Thank you so much. Thank we'll talk you. to you soon. We'll have you on again. Okay, bye. Thanks a lot. All right, Karen. Woo! Let's have a drink, Karen. I'm taking okay. a drink. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. It's funny how sometimes you don't take action until people have died. I remember visiting my mother in an Alzheimer's facility in Studio City, And my cousins, Carol and Dan, were there. And I had this little tape recorder with me. My dad had passed on five years before. And I started to interview my cousins, Carol and Dan, about my parents because they were very close to them. And they knew them for many years, even before they were married. I want you to know that I got the funniest, most adorable stories about my mom and dad that I would have never heard otherwise. I kid you not. I found out that my dad, Buddy Greenhouse, used to invite people to massive parties, bring everybody together, and then they'd all get to the party and they go, where's Buddy? And he was not there. In other words, he would just put the whole thing together, get everybody to come, and sometimes he would not show up. Now, you may not think that's funny. You may think that's rude and all that, but I thought that was hysterical when I first heard about it. It's just not something that I would think that my dad was capable of, but apparently he was. Many of you listening to the show are going to wait until your parents and your sisters and brothers and cousins pass on before you ever capture the wonderful stories and legacy of your family. I'm making a very special service available to those of you that would like me to interview your family and capture the wonderful stories that are the gift of your family legacy. It's a really special service. It's very confidential and private and can be done in either audio or video. Don't miss the occasion to capture the living legacy of your family and the great treasures that are sitting there. I'm a miner. I know how to get to those treasures. Call me at its rainmaking time at 626-398-8652. Thank you. And back to the show. Okay, we're back with Karen Hudis. We're going to talk about a few more things that we didn't get a chance to talk about while Ellen Brown was with us. 
I want to talk about gold further with you because I'm such an advocate and lover of metals. Let's talk a little bit about how you're being received and what's been going on with you lately, Karen, and then we'll get to the gold. It's been really quite an adventure. I was on the radio in Poland, in Holland, in Australia. People will follow up afterwards. They'll want to know what the nitty-gritty is, where the sites are. People are really taking it seriously about the corruption that I've been reporting. Some of them are asking for copies of the correspondence that I've had because I've written the embassies now for many years. And they're holding their governments to account. So it's pretty dramatic, actually, what's going on. You see a movement snowballing. One of the really interesting emails was a mapping agency. This is somebody who's working the data that they get from the satellites. They're saying that there's a lot of minerals and other wealth that people don't know about. It's just now being grabbed by this super entity. They want that to stop. It's really heartwarming to see what people have in mind. There's one group in the Netherlands that asked me to forward something to the person who had been the executive director. This is Herman Weifels. He was working with the board when there was a huge cover-up. Paul Wolfowitz came to the World Bank, and he was fired by the board because he gave a huge pay raise to his girlfriend, Shahariza. <laughs> and what happened was, do you remember Elliot Spitzer, who yes. lost his governorship? yes. He lost his governorship because he was patronizing the New York madam. Well, there were some of the executive directors that found their way to that same business establishment, and they were being blackmailed. You know how Chancellor Merkel is so angry about this misuse of... Um, the cell phone at, auditing. Yeah the, yeah, the listening to the telephone conversations of the ambassadors. Well, what had happened with the board was blackmail to try to prevent them from firing Paul Wolfowitz. And I found out about this because I speak Dutch. I happen to be in Holland. You speak Dutch? You yeah, speak... I studied no. economics at the University oh, of Oh, I Amsterdam. know that, but I didn't know you speak fluently. Oh, yeah, yeah. So anyway, when he told the Dutch people in a Dutch newspaper about how the executive directors were being blackmailed. And then the following day, his predecessor, Ad Belkert, had been interviewed on the Dutch television show. And Ad said, yes, they weren't blackmailing me because I'm a boring guy, but I knew other people on the board that were being blackmailed. Anyway, I went to the United States and I told Senator Luger's staff, and they told me to tell Kenneth Peel in the Treasury Department, which I did. And don't forget, I had that stakeholder analysis. I said, this is absolutely very short-sighted. We're going to lose the gentleman's agreement. There's no way that these ambassadors are going to accept this kind of ridiculous treatment. Anyway, I went to the Senate Committee on Intelligence. I went to Diane Feinstein on this. And, you know, they just sort of sat there as if everything I was saying was irrelevant. So I took all of this information and I sent it to each and every mission for the United Nations. And I said, it's about time that we get to the bottom of this because there's another convention inside the World Bank which says that the board is just going to sit back and wait for the presidency to propose an action and then they're going to vote something up or down. I said, with the amount of corruption that's going on here, you need to end this. That was what I told the board in 2009. That was when I was locked out of the World Bank headquarters. And that was the triggering event that allowed me to begin my lawsuit because I had been fired in 2007, but I was locked out of the building in 2009. You know, under Sarbanes-Oxley, you have a limited period of time to bring a suit. And my suit was brought under Sarbanes-Oxley. To make a dramatic story more dramatic, 
we have got a tag team of people on the ground in their country who are following up with all of the correspondence that I've had with their ambassadors. They're holding the entire structure to account. I'm sure it's been a wild ride, and I'm sure it will continue to be a wild ride. <laughs> oh, it's been great. You know? What is your biggest pet peeve about what people are talking about with regard to the economy? Well, you heard a little bit of the exasperation yes, I did. Um, with Ellen Brown. <laughs> yeah. I really am so sorry that people insist on this doom and gloom scenario when we have all of this wealth and we're pretending as if we don't have it and we're accepting the silence. Why would people accept the silence? Why would people accept bad news? I just find that very, uh, it's just taking so long. You know what it is, though? People refuse to wake up. You've been in this a long time, though, and your awareness has been present for a long time. And so probably, you know, when you've been carrying something a long time of knowledge and awareness, it's always like you're waiting for everybody to catch up. And it seems like it takes forever. But this frame of reference is really unfamiliar. It's an unfamiliar thing that you're talking about with regard to the wealth being there, that there's provision there. So it's new terrain. There's something called the Public Trust 1776. I have never read it, so I can't even comment on it. But a lot of people are talking about it and excited about it. Some say it's never going to work and all that. And I was wondering if you're familiar with it, if you're part of it. No, I haven't heard about it. Tell me about it. I'm giving you the synopsis of it, and yet I haven't read it. My understanding is it's a new treaty that basically extinguishes a falsity of debt. It puts in some type of new global system by treaty. That's all I know. There has been a real push to have a single currency, and that is a terrible, terrible idea. Sure. No, I get that. And so this is something that whenever you come at me with world system, I'm coming from a world institution, but what I've seen is that local yeah. is what works sure. and not global. I'm with you on that. I just wondered if you heard about it. I think I'm going to send you a link to it just for you to be familiar because people told me years ago, and this may or may not be true, is that everything that occurs, whether it's the UCC or whatever, is by treaty and by this UCC commercial code stuff that you talked about a little bit oh, earlier. Oh, yeah. I'll tell you what that is. Okay. That's part of this corruption, this terribly corrupt system that I've been telling you about, where I was explaining how you've got a lot of mumbo-jumbo to hide the corruption. Sure. If this is part of that, we're dismantling it. Like I said, because I haven't read it, I can't even say I just wanted to ask you if you knew about it. I thought maybe you might have read it. I didn't know. No, I don't know about it, but it doesn't sound particularly appetizing to me. Yeah, well, there's a reason I haven't read it and I've known about it for a year. So uh, I usually let my intuition do the walking. Earlier at the beginning, it was painful to hear when you talked about Muhammad Yunus being duped, and obviously he was. And one of the things that happened that really I was in a lot of pain about is that after he got the Nobel Prize, he was going all over the world and talking, and Gordon Brown invited him to his home. And shortly after Gordon Brown had a hold of Yunus for some days, Yunus had a wish list on his website, and his wish was to have one currency a world currency. So apparently Gordon Brown talked him into this whole thing. It was so painful to watch a guy like Eunice, who's very heart-centered, who really did an extraordinary thing, even if he couldn't secure it, obviously, for the full term, right? It was painful to see this, but even how really good people that do good stuff can still be influenced by people that are totally corrupt and inappropriate for where we are today. It was just a very sad thing. I thought I'd share that with you in the audience. 
Yeah, no. Whenever anybody talks about one world currency, run the other way. <laughs> oh, I have. I have. But that's yeah. why I was sharing what an interesting thing it was. Let's go back to the gold. It seems to be the most coveted, secretly possessed thing besides the minerals. Talk about, is it Yamashiro or Yamashita's gold? I don't even know how to pronounce it. Yeah, Yamashita. Yamashita. And, um, let me give you just a little teaser on this. Please. It turns out that he is the son of a man who was Victoria's twin. There were two children born at that time. His last name was Talano, and he was a bit of a cad. And when he was a young boy, you know, maybe he was Asperger's or something. I don't know. But the court didn't think he was going to make a good king. So they sent him off to the Philippines. And then he went around the world having illegitimate children, one of whom was Yamashito. Another one, <laughs> I can't, you know, I'm laughing. <laughs> Another one was Adolf Hitler. Oh, boy. That's, yeah. what, that's what we call a Fakakta family. Go ahead. That is really, I mean, that is unbelievable. I'm giving and, you Yiddish uh, here. Except that it's true. Um, <laughs> and anyway, so there's a German lawyer who has given me a description of the family tree. And so Yamashita was one of the sons of Talano, Victoria's twin brother. So Yamashita went around just before World War II around Asia, collecting gold in return for all of these bonds that would come due after a lengthy period of time, and some of which carried interest. So there were these improbable quantities of gold. Some of it was buried in Indonesia. Some of it was buried in the Philippines. I think some was in Thailand. Most of it has now found its way to the vaults of those banks that I was telling you about. So is this kind of the Indiana Jones or Peyton Place, all my children version of anything large that's happening with gold that's being possessed? Well, what I can tell you is I have seen the bank accounts. I have seen the documentation. There is a German lawyer who has made it his business. You know, he's the authorized signatory on these collateral accounts. Wow. Yeah, it's very, very real. And as I said, I'm not the only person that has been referring to this. And it was part of the agreement that was signed by John F. Kennedy 10 days before he was assassinated. I've heard you talk about the Vatican and the Jesuits, but when you bring it in, why do you bring it in and what is it you want us to know? If you go back and read your history books about the Jesuits, they were <laughs> what what the people our founding fathers had to say about them. They were known for their manipulations behind the scenes. And whenever there would be a pope who was doing things that they didn't approve of, they would poison him. I mean, this, this is not a nice bunch of folks. <laughs> and, you know, I'm sorry that all of this that I'm telling you sounds so improbable. It doesn't it sound improbable at true. all. In fact, I wouldn't ask you if I didn't think there was something to okay. it. I'm asking you because I really do think there is connection, there's correlation. It's all synchronized as part of the goings-on in the world. Some hosts are afraid to talk about this. So I'm not afraid to talk about it. I don't know anything about it. That's why I'm asking you. Okay, well, it has been going on for a very, very long time. And in 1274, I believe it was, there was a king, I think it was James, who had a war that was very expensive and he ended up, at the end of the exercise, owing a lot of money to the Vatican, to the Jesuits, and he wrote this treaty by which, you know, even though the United Kingdom was supposedly Protestant, they were going to be sending all this money to the Vatican. And so if you go back and look at all the various wars that we have had with the United Kingdom, there's been a proclamation of victory, 
And then it turns out that we end up paying huge war reparations. And the United States have been declared in bankruptcy as a result. And our tax revenues are going to the United Kingdom. And then because of those other treaties, they've been going on to the Vatican. So when you fill out your tax return, you've got your return going one place and you've got your check going straight to the Federal Reserve. And then the Federal Reserve trundles it off to London, which keeps 40% of it, and sends 60% of it on to the Jesuits. Now, this is not a good arrangement, obviously, and that's why you have to talk about it. You know, you have to come to grips with it, and you have to end it. Is there anything else you'd like to say about this? People are going to find it improbable. I certainly did the first time I heard it, but unfortunately, it happens to be the case. And the way this is implemented is because every year, without telling us, the Congress declares a state of national emergency, which allows them to suspend the Bill of Rights. And that's where we are. And that shouldn't continue. It obviously should not continue. Do I dare ask you where you're at? I have a feeling, but I don't want to assume, about the Affordable Care Act and the quote... Oh, that. I know. Let's start screaming together. Let's start screaming. All of our data is going. It's not protected. I know. Look at at how (laughs) the the procurement was for the website. There was sole source procurement. And the firm that did that website and how easy it is to hack, it's there for the benefit of the insurance companies. It was written by the insurance companies. There is a real need to have a public health law, but this is not what we need. It's not what we deserve as a people. I think most of us agree with you on that and are quite worried about it. Do you feel on any level that there's a Trojan horse in this force measure? There's a Trojan horse in the whole thing from the get-go. Do you think it's a nice horse? <laughs> what I think, what I think, Kim, is yeah. that enough of us are aware of what's going on, that there will be a constitutional convention. You know, we're going to set things straight. And the reason why I can say this so categorically is because of all the help I've been getting. It's just been the most heartwarming experience to be working with these people. You're Uh, rocking and rolling is what you're doing. I want to know what your husband thinks of you now. He must be like in awe. Is he bowing down every day? right now. What? I can't tell you. (laughs) (laughs) He must be very proud of you. You'll have to ask him directly yourself. Is he there with you? No, you, no, no. I can't put him All on. All right. Really. All right. Tell him that Kim Greenhouse from its Rainmaking Time and the chief executive officer of the Rainmaking Company wants to know, is he proud of his wife or the work she's doing? Oh, I world? can tell you that right now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> tell your husband that's the right answer. <laughs> okay, I, I'll do that. Thanks. Are you able to transmit the things you learn to your children? Or are they too young to receive? No, no, no. Um, You know, the, the thing about kids is that all of the things that you wish that you yourself didn't have seems to be the things they inherit directly from you. I mean, I've got this wild curly hair, and one of my daughters has that. And, you know, you can just sort of go on with that. But... Every human being has to do their own thing. And I think the life of a whistleblower, it makes it especially hard for the kids. Yes, you know? indeed. And I've tried to shield them with very mixed results. <laughs> I hear you. Well, I wish you the best with your children and your family and the continued work that you're doing. 
I look forward to one day being in a great, wonderful deal with you and others because sometimes working as a whistleblower, and I can speak for myself in a different way, it's nice to take time out and bring something in that has to do with commerce and that has to do with bringing people together and cooperation and to set up a new structure of something so that it can be replicated across the world, almost like a hundredth monkey. I know you're involved in doing that in a different way. But it's I- funny that you, you said hundredth monkey because, you know, there's a film crew in Italy and, you know, they're doing a documentary and they interviewed me and that's the name of the film. Fantastic. And in Italian, it's really a nice sounding name, but I wouldn't hazard So I think that it's kind of poetic justice to do a great prosperity series of deals across the world to infect the rest of us with that new thing that takes off and becomes another organism that replicates like a fractal. I want to thank you very much for your time today and for being willing to go through the various layers of complexity and difficulty and intensity. I'm sure I brought a lot of intensity to it, and I probably wasn't as peaceful as I could be. I hope that I invited you at the highest level of your being to come forth today. And I thank you so much, Karen Hudis, for joining us. Thank you for having me, Kim. It's been great. It's rainmaking time. Can I hear you say that? It's rainmaking time. It is rainmaking time. And ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Karen Hudis. You can read all about her, listen to videos and other interviews that she's done if you have questions. The website is K-A-H-U-D-E-S dot net, and I've got a contact form there. So, Okay, very good. Thank you very much, Karen. Stand by.